Welcome back to the Big Amateurs of Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a real quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. And then I also have some good stuff in a blog that I've been writing in for almost three years now. The name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X dot com. Okay, today is Wednesday, September 8th. 2021, and we are continuing our discussion of the NCAA's infractions and enforcement case against NC State arising from the basketball scandals and the criminal prosecutions that occurred in 2018. And we are up to really the tail end of the NCAA formal process. And just to give you a quick recap of the timeline, because it's important, this timeline really tells a story here, and it's not a story that's very favorable for the NCAA or for principles of fairness and due process. So the beginning of this saga is September of 2017, when the acting U.S. attorney in the Southern District of New York announced criminal charges against a number of Adidas representatives, and then assistant coaches at certain major universities, including Louisville and Miami and Kansas, and and then later NC State. NC State wasn't involved initially, but they were brought into the case a few months later. And this was a bombshell story. It was national news, and it consumed the sports media for months. And it became a real public relations problem for all of the universities and the people at those universities who were implicated in this scheme to funnel money from Adidas to high-value recruits that the Adidas-related universities were trying to bring into their program. And it's just a big ball of mess and grassroots basketball corruption and university greed. And I've laid substantial foundation throughout this process really going back to episode 52. So if you want to get up to speed on this, if you're jumping into this podcast in this episode, I would urge you to go back and start at uh, episode 52, and then you can work forward and get a good broad background on how we got from there to here. But the most important milestones in this saga as they relate to NC State and to the NCAA's newly found authorities to basically create NCAA violations literally out of thin air from evidence borrowed in proceedings that really have little to do with the NCAA enforcement and infractions process. And then through circumstantial evidence that tells us very little, they're using those tools that were recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball that arose as a direct product of these this basketball-related scandal. So In October of 2017, right after these announcements of the criminal charges, the NCAA forms the Commission on College Basketball, and Mark Emmert's on his high horse, and he's making his usual proclamations on the integrity of college sports and all this bad actor stuff and the code of silence and all these things that really are more appropriately directed to the NCAA itself because it operates like the mafia. But out of those Commission on College Basketball recommendations, which were announced in April of 2018, you had the commission recommending the use of certain really powerful investigative 
and evidentiary tools that allow the NCAA to pull in evidence from other tribunals and then to use non-cooperation by people under the NCAA's jurisdiction as a basis for assuming a guilt without any evidence. And I believe the only intelligent reading of the commission's report with respect to the infractions and enforcement process is that these new tools were designed only for an entirely new bureaucracy that was going to be set up completely independent of the NCAA and that the use of these powerful tools could not have been intended for use by the old, corrupted, conflicted NCAA enforcement and infractions process and the enforcement staff, the NCAA national employees at the national office who have been under scrutiny for decades because of their Soviet-style enforcement and infractions tactics. So the purpose of the recommendations were to take the important components of this process out of the hands of the old system, the, the Soviet system and the enforcement staff and the committee on infractions, these in-house people who had been operating under what I believe are disqualifying conflicts of interest and to move it into a system that had some integrity, at least on its face. And I talked a, a lot about how the NCAA took those recommendations and then put them into legislation in a way that the commission never intended. And that's a real big problem here. And NC State has tapped into that. So we have these recommendations that the commission made. Then in August, of 2018, the NCAA folds in these powerful tools, the importation clause, this borrowing of evidence, and then the consequences of non-cooperation, and then the use of circumstantial evidence. And they don't put those powers in the new system. They put them as broad powers available to the old bad system and the new system. And that, in my judgment, was the fatal mistake that the original sin of the NCAA in interpreting the Commission on College Basketball's recommendations. So then a month after that, with these new tools in their toolkit, the NCAA begins its investigation, uh, the regulatory investigation, after the criminal cases are concluded, after the defendants are convicted of conspiracy to commit wire fraud, this flimsy, flimsy charge. They do a regulatory investigation where the universities, uh, namely NC State here, went from being the victim in the criminal case, now to the perpetrator on the regulatory side. And the NCAA began this investigation through the old bad process. The Commission on College Basketball was very clear that it is precisely these kinds of cases, these kinds of cases that originated from the same core facts that gave life to the Commission and its work, that these cases that came out of the Southern District of New York, these criminal cases, any enforcement and infractions that followed from those cases needed to be run through the new system. That was the very purpose of the new system. But the, the infrastructure for the new system, which is going to require the uh, formation of several committees and then the retention of outside investigators, outside advocates, and outside adjudicators. All these people were going to be completely outside of the old corrupt NCAA process. And it took a, a while to get that infrastructure in place. That infrastructure was in place the following year, as of August of 2019. And the NCAA, rather than waiting to send these cases through that process once it was up and running, they rammed them through the old bad process using tools that were never intended for the Committee on Infractions or the NCAA in-house enforcement staff. 
And as we're going to see in our discussion of the NCAA's reply to the NCAA's response, the vast majority of the quote-unquote evidence that the NCAA was relying upon in its investigation, which lasted about, I don't know, nine, 10 months. So they started it in September of 2018, and they issued the indictment, the notice of allegations to NC State on July 9th of 2019. And the central allegation in the NCAA's case against NC State is an alleged $40,000 payment made by this really sketchy guy <laughs> named TJ Gaznola. And that money supposedly was earmarked for the family of Dennis Smith Jr., who was his prize recruit, who wound up playing for NC State for one year. And then he entered the NBA draft and was a first-round draft choice. And there were some other allegations that I talked about in prior episodes, but I'm not going to be focusing on that. I'm focusing on this $40,000 payment because that is really the, the centerpiece of this whole infractions and enforcement action against NC State. And in all of the procedural milestones in the NCAA's case against NC State, that's really where this dispute lands. So after the indictment, the notice of allegations on July 9th of 2019, NC State files its response on December 9th of 2019. Mark Gottfried files a, a separate response as well. And then an assistant coach who was allegedly the conduit for this payment from Adidas to NC State and then uh, ultimately through an intermediary and then to Dennis Smith Jr. or his family. He receives a notice of allegation but does not respond. And that's really important too because the, the NCAA is using his silence really as a substitute for evidence that links the origin of this $40,000 through the chain of custody and allegedly into the Smith family's hands. And they are now able to try to use this assistant coach's silence in that way because of the NCAA's bastardized adoption of the recommendations of the Commission on College Basketball. So now we are heading into 20. 20. And there have been some administrative machinations I talked about in the last couple of episodes involving Carol Cartwright, who was assigned to be really the project manager for the NCAA in managing all of these infractions and enforcement cases that arose from the criminal prosecutions in this basketball scandal. I'm going to talk a lot more about Carol Cartwright in the next episode. So we're now into February of 2020. And on February 7th of 2020, the NCAA files its written reply to the response filed by NC State and Mark Gottfried. And this is the first time where we really see the NCAA identifying the specific quote-unquote evidence that it is relying on to make its case against NC State. And so I want to go through this, and I'm going to assume that you're up to speed on the background facts. And if you aren't, I did episodes both on the NCAA's indictment, the notice of allegations, and then the last episode on NC State's response. So you can check those out. We have the NCAA sort of showing their hand finally in their initial notice of allegations. It was very broad. They worked telling us where they were getting their evidence. They were keeping their cards close to their vest. And in this process, they get the first word and the last word. And in between that, the people who were subject of the investigation, the institutions and the individuals, they get to file their response. But really, that's it. That's, they don't ha have the ability to come back around. Once the NCAA finally shows its cards and the evidence it's 
relying on in this final phase of the investigative process, the school and the individuals don't get the opportunity to come back and pick that apart. So again, this whole system is rigged in favor of the NCAA being able to arbitrarily and capriciously find violations of NCAA regulations and then bring the hammer down very selectively in order to maintain this ridiculous public facade of the integrity of college sports and the integrity of amateurism and the student athlete and the collegiate model and and all that. So I want to go through the NCAA's analysis of the facts that support its conclusion. And they've already drawn this conclusion. We we don't need to go to the hearing panel. The NCAA has already concluded that this violation has occurred. And that's one of the problems from a due process standpoint. And it's a problem that NC State focuses on in some detail in their response. But this is going to swirl around this $40,000 payment. And let's take a look at what the NCAA says here. And just from the very beginning here, they have what's called a key record list. And there are 10 sources. This is really the template for the NCAA's factual, quote unquote, factual support for the positions that it's taken with respect to this uh, $40,000 payment. And of those 10, eight of them relate to this $40,000 payment. There were these other issues about tickets and free uh, admissions to NC State games and all that. But then there are a couple of entries here that deal with that. But that's kind of a Mickey Mouse issue. The eight entries that relate to the sources and resources for the NCAA's case on this $40,000 payment have five of them coming from the criminal case in New York. So we have T.J. Gasnola's testimony. We have opening statements. We have the sealed information, which I think is the indictment. We have closing arguments. Then we have the government sentencing memo that relates to Gasnola. All of this evidence runs through TJ Gasnola. And some of these sources have absolutely nothing to do with any piece of evidence that was introduced or even considered in that case. It's not evidence at all. It is nothing more than statements made by Gaznola's attorneys for strategic reasons that, that have no legitimate relevance in the NCAA's regulatory case against NC State. And really were comments that were made to avoid even getting into the fact-based paper trail of how this money originated and where it may have wound up. And it's just shocking that the NCAA is using these new powers, these, this power of importation from the Committee on College Basketball's recommendations to use this type of quote-unquote evidence from another tribunal to make out a case in the infractions and enforcement process. So I want to start in the NCAA's discussion of this $40,000 payment with the way it kind of bottom lines, its position on all of this evidence. And in all these documents, and actually this is true in most legal documents, legal briefs, memos to the court, this is true in legal opinions. You can read them and there are certain portions that really condense all of the issues, all of the facts, all of the actors into a summary that pretty much captures the essence of the position that the author of that document is taking. And in this document, 
the NCAA uh, does that really towards the end of its analysis. And I just want to read this paragraph because it really says it all. And this is where the NCAA is saying, this is our case. This is our evidence. These are our positions in a nutshell. And so the NCAA says, the consistent and credible evidence together with factual information uncovered in the investigation. And by investigation, they're referring to their own NCAA enforcement staff investigation, not the criminal case. But they say that that confirms that early this NC State assistant coach made arrangements for financial aid or other benefits to Smith, the player, or his family members or friends in violation of bylaw 13.2.1, which is an amateurism-based bylaw. They go on to say, this evidence includes, among other things, Gaznola's testimony and guilty plea that he paid early so Smith would not leave NC State. Gatto's statements at trial that he paid the Smith family so NC State could compete and Smith would not go to a different college. The jury's guilty verdict of conspiracy to commit wire fraud as it related to NC State and the government's positions in the Gatto case, the government and Gasnola's positions in their respective sentencing memoranda, that Gasnola made payments on behalf of Adidas and Gatto to ensure Smith would attend and play at NC State in the Gasnola case and phone records. So just looking at these things, just listing these things, all of these relate to the criminal case, almost all of them, except the phone records. And I'm going to talk about that as well. But outside of these phone records that the NCAA uses to try to cobble together circumstantial evidence about what was happening in their timeline, all of the quote-unquote substantive evidence comes from the criminal case. And a lot of it doesn't relate to evidence at all. It relates to quote-unquote positions that the parties took for either strategic or self-serving reasons that do not go to the core facts of the case that are relevant in the NCAA's case against NC State and the enforcement and infractions process. So this sentencing memo means nothing. It just means that T.J. Gasnola, in order to avoid prison time, and he was successful on that, he didn't serve a day of, of jail. He was given probation. And, but in his sentencing memo, that's where the prosecution comes in and just loads up the allegations and the things that they're trying to get into the record through Gasnola's cooperation. <laughs> Again, this guy's just bad news. But in that document, the government is just filling it up with garbage as much as they can. And then Gasnola has to agree to it if he wants to avoid jail time. It has very little practical, credible, reliable value. And then the government's quote unquote positions in the Gatto case, and then the Gatto's positions have absolutely nothing to do with the evidence, particularly Gatto's positions as set forth in the opening statement. And I'm going to talk about that specifically and really focus on that because the NCAA put that front and center of their analysis of the quote-unquote evidence that they're using to stick it to NC State. And when you break that down and look at what it really means and how not only irrelevant but 
fundamentally misleading the use of that position is in this infractions and enforcement case. You just come away thinking, how in the world does the NCAA think they're going to get away with that? And I mentioned in the prior episodes, I think I talked about this in the last episode, that you really have to look at the timeline here. The timeline here is so important, not just with respect to the sequence of events that are relevant to this case against NC State, but what the NCAA is doing completely outside of that. Because in this time frame, 2018, now we're into 2020, February of 2020, pre-COVID. But during that time, the NCAA is in the height of its campaign in federal courts, in this Austin case, and in the Senate and in its public relations campaign to try to achieve a regulatory power grab unprecedented in the history of American sports because the NCAA was seeking absolute antitrust immunity in any cases challenging amateurism-based compensation limits. It was seeking the absolute preemption of any state law that would have in any way undermined the NCAA's rules relating to its amateurism-based compensation limits and a federal declaration under federal law that athletes couldn't be deemed employees of their universities. It was a complete regulatory power grab that combined with the U.S. Supreme Court's decision in 1988 in NCAA versus Tarkanian, in which the U.S. Supreme Court, in a five to four decision, held that the NCAA couldn't be held to federal due process standards because it wasn't a quote unquote state actor. All of those factors operating together in 2019 and early 2020 had the NCAA and Mark Emmert and Donald Remy, the two key guys in this whole campaign, this legislative campaign, this legal campaign, the public relations campaign, they and the outside lawyers, these really powerful outside lawyers and lobbyists that the NCAA had doing their bidding, all these people are working together and they are operating from a position of supreme confidence supreme arrogance and supreme disdain for anyone who dared challenge the NCAA's regulatory authority. That's where they were coming from in 2019 and 2020. And they believed that after having been on defense in these antitrust suits and then in Congress where they get hauled before Congress for their anti-competitive practices, they, for the first time they're on offense and they believe they're about to pull off the most consequential regulatory power grab in the history of American sports. And if they had gotten what they wanted through these campaigns that really began in earnest in 2019, then they would be untouchable. Their regulatory authority would be unchallengeable. And there would be absolutely no way that someone in NC State's position in this infractions and enforcement process would have a leg to stand on. And then through these new powers that they got through the Commission on College Basketball, I mean, the table's just set here in 2019 and early 2020 for a climate and culture in the enforcement and infractions process that is just my way or the highway. And that is apparent in the way that the NCAA formulates its reply document here, and then even more so with what happens when this case then gets referred out to this new independent process just a week later. That's going to be the next episode. But that's that's important for another reason here. So with this February 7th, 2020 reply, this is really the end of the process here. So this process 
has stayed in the old bad Committee on Infractions process, and they're relying on information from the notoriously unreliable enforcement staff, NCAA in-house employees at the national office right there in Indianapolis. And even though at any point after August of 2019, Carol Cartwright or the NCAA Committee on Infractions could have taken this case or any other cases arising from the basketball scandal and put them into the new process, which was specifically adopted, devised, and constructed for these very cases. But that didn't happen here, at least not as of February 7th of 2020. But this is the end of the process. And all this goes to the Committee on Infractions. As of February 7th, 2020, that's where this train was headed, to the Committee on Infractions, the old process, these NCAA insiders who, by the clear acknowledgement of the Commission on College Basketball, were operating under conflicts of interest that made their decision-making particularly ill-suited for these high-stakes cases, high-stakes cases just like the NC State case. So I read to you this paragraph where the NCAA kind of bottom lines its evidence, and there is nothing there beyond these phone records, these logs of phone calls and text messages that the NCAA can rely on to piece together the trail of this money. Remember, this money, allegedly, under the NCAA's theory, this money originated with T.J. Gasnola, it's $40,000, and then he takes that $40,000 and he flies to Raleigh. And this is at or about the time of what's called the signing period in basketball. It's in the fall, late October, early November, when there's all this buzz in the basketball sports media about what star athletes are going to sign with which universities. And you have these kids holding press conferences. And if you follow college basketball, you know the whole song and dance. But that is a period of extraordinary anxiety for the universities and for the coaches because they don't know for sure whether they have a prized recruit until the recruit signs the national letter of intent and then makes the public announcement that they're going to attend a particular university. And there are all kinds of communications there, emails, text messages phone calls, they're flying like candy at a Christmas parade because of the built-in anxiety in this time frame. And it's in this time frame that this alleged transaction occurs. So I, I just want to say this with respect to these phone records. When the NCAA looks at the increased activity that they tie to certain of the specific dates in this timeline, a lot of them are in this period of high anxiety. And it's my belief that you could pick a star recruit out of the blue that's not involved in this basketball scandal and then get the paper trail, the text messages, the emails, the phone calls from the coaching staff to all the people swirling around that athlete, and you're going to see a similar pattern here. But the NCAA's story here is that somehow early, the assistant coach, NC State assistant coach, has heard through the rumor mill that Dennis Smith Jr. is wavering on his informal commitment to NC State because he had announced that. And he's from Fayetteville, North Carolina. His grandmother was a big NC State fan. In the recruiting community and the chatter that goes on on all these message boards about recruiting and who's going to sign where and who's interested and all that stuff. It was pretty well understood that NC State was in the driver's seat with Dennis Smith Jr. for a variety of reasons. And it wasn't a surprise. This wasn't a situation that immediately raised red flags where a kid may have made suggestions that he was going to sign with I don't know, UCLA, for example, and then he winds up at Murray State. You know, it's, it's not that kind of situation. The NCAA's theory, though, is that Early is nervous because he thinks that some other schools are trying to butt in on Smith and that 
the Smith family may be wavering and that he contacts Gasnola and Gasnola unilaterally on his own without any discussion in the record about what the amount of the payment would be. Gasnola takes 40 grand out. He flies to Raleigh. He gives $40,000 to Early. And I just want to say at that point, the paper trail is dead. Even accepting all of the assumptions that the NCAA built into pulling evidence from the criminal case, that's where the evidence ends in the criminal case. And the reason that it ends there is because under this conspiracy to commit wire fraud, the government doesn't have to prove up the case. And the case is against Gatto. Again, Gatto is third party removed guy because he is involved in that transaction. He reimburses Gasnola for that $40,000 payment. That's his involvement in it. But Gatto's really removed from this whole thing. And in their case against Gatto, they don't have to prove up where this money wound up. They just have to have TJ Gasnola saying, yeah, this relates to NC State, and I had this conversation with Early, which is hearsay, but it came in anyway. And Early wasn't a party to the criminal prosecution. He wasn't called as a witness. So this is all speculation from TJ Gasnola, the government star witness who's not going to get a a day of prison time. But Gasnola says, yes, the purpose of this payment was to cement in Dennis Smith Jr.'s commitment to NC State, his informal commitment to play at NC State. And Early wanted the money and he wanted it quickly. And so I sent him the $40,000. I delivered the $40,000. And then there's zero evidence of where that money went from there. Zero evidence. No credible evidence from any of the participants in the alleged transmission of that money from Orlando Early then to Sean Farmer, who was Dennis Smith Jr.'s personal trainer and coach, and he was kind of the gatekeeper for access to the Smith family. That's a common dynamic in the grassroots basketball setting. And then from Farmer to the Smith family, there's zero evidence of that paper trail. So the NCAA, rather than doing an investigation that would prove up that paper trail, they rely on inference and speculation and assumption and then Orlando Early's silence to assume guilt, to piece together, to cobble together this illusion of a paper trail that doesn't have credible evidence to support it. And and that really is acknowledged by the NCAA because when they are laying out their case at the very beginning, and this is really before they even get into any of the allegations, it's in their introduction. They say the allegations against NC State and Early and Gottfried include the arrangement and a likely provision of a substantial recruiting inducement, including a $40,000 cash payment arranged through third parties and boosters and additional violations related to the recruitment of former men's basketball student-athlete Dennis Smith Jr., student-athlete, who was a top point guard prospect in the 2016 recruiting class. A likely provision of substantial recruiting inducement. A likely provision. That's enough for the NCAA. And all they need to prove up in their view of the world and their sense of NCAA justice is the likely provision. And then they use suggestion, innuendo, comments that occurred in connection with this criminal case. They wouldn't be fit for introduction in any proceeding of any integrity or credibility. But the the NCAA, with this new importation law and its self-righteous sense of justice and its belief in 2019 and early 2020 that it and it alone should sit on the iron throne of college sports regulation. And this reply document is just drenched 
in that arrogance. So I want to go back to this $40,000 payment because in this section, which is a few pages long, the way the NCAA cites to the evidence, it is writing the text of its argument. And then for each assertion in that text, it drops a footnote to the evidence that it contends supports that assertion. And the NCAA uses about five pages to address this $40,000 payment. And I counted 41 footnotes that it dropped in its citations to the evidence that it's relying on. And of those 41, over half of them come from the Gatto case. And then another, so that's 21 or 22 from the Gatto case. And then another 10 come from these phone records and text messages. And then there, there are 10 others that kind of mixed in that really aren't citations to evidence, but three quarters of these references, of these 41 references go either to the Gano case or these phone records. And again, the NCAA acknowledges that these phone records are circumstantial evidence, but they contend that they can use circumstantial evidence like this. But on this, just for example, on this very first page of substantive discussion on the $40,000 payment, there are 12 footnotes that they drop. 10 of them come from the criminal case, and it's Gasnola's testimony, sealed affirmation, sealed affirmation, government sentencing memo, defendant's sentencing memo, Gasnola testimony, opening statements, Gasnola testimony, Gasnola testimony, Gasnola testimony. Boom, boom, boom. The record is just flooded here with statements that have n nothing to do with evidence. They aren't evidence. They are self-serving. And they are strategic for purposes, the limited purposes of the conspiracy to commit wire fraud charges in that case. And then you have just broad statements from the indictments that mean nothing. They're unproven. They're allegations. And even once we get to the evidence in the criminal case, as I said before, the paper trail ends with Gasnola's testimony. He it was not corroborated by any other witness. It was corroborated by some receipts that, yes, he took out $40,000. Yes, he bought a, a ticket to fly to Raleigh, but that's it. That's it. And we know nothing about the origin of the money, the true purpose of the money, or what happened to it after it was allegedly provided to Orlando early. Nothing in the record in that criminal case supports any of those assumptions. So now I want to talk about three specific components of the NCAA's reply. It's February 7th, 2020 reply that are really troubling. And the first is the information that the NCAA relies on from Gatto's attorney in his opening statement. The second is the use of Early's silence to essentially uh, substitute for evidence of the paper trail for this payment. And then the third is the use of these phone records circumstantially to try to prove essentially that there's some smoke here, so there must be fire. And that's good enough for the NCAA. <laughs> and you're getting NCAA justice here. So let's start with the opening statement, the comment by Gatto's attorney in opening statement. So the very first paragraph of the NCAA's discussion about this 40 $1,000 payment and the facts that support it reads, Gesnola acknowledged he was involved in making payments to families of five student athletes, including Smith, because those students were either one, involved in, or Adidas wanted them on its grassroots circuit. That's the 
youth basketball circuit, the AAU circuit, or two, attending or in the process of enrolling at Adidas-sponsored universities. And all these universities that were implicated, NC State, Kansas, Louisville, were all, quote-unquote, Adidas schools. Then the next sentence says, Gatto's attorney in opening trial statements admitted that, quote, NCAA rules were broken. Gatto and Adidas helped out financially a few families. We are not going to waste your time pretending that these families did not get funds, end quote. And then they say Gasnola made the payments while he was employed by Adidas and obtained the funds from Adidas, either through Gatto or as reimbursement. So that's basically the, the, their case in a nutshell. But what's interesting about the use of this opening statement comment is that it is front and center in how the NCAA is framing its case. And it is a perfect insight into how the NCAA thinks. Because in their way of thinking, on its face, this statement has some bombshell components to it. But it's an empty bombshell when you really break it down. So you have the attorney for one of these shadow actors, you know, there've been all these discussions about this shadowy market that exists in grassroots basketball. Now, finally, we get to peek inside the cave of that dirty, dirty, bad actor business. And you have Gatto's attorney, you know, a key player in this coming out and saying, Yes, this, all this happened. This bad stuff happened. The, this money moved. These payments were made. And we're not going to waste your time trying to prove that they did it. We're just going to go forward and talk about some bigger picture issues here. And that has power. That context has power to lay people because you can easily be misled into thinking that statement was a binding admission against interests of people who have nothing to do. With that case, knowing that NC State's implicated, knowing that this $40,000 payment is at issue, and that's been covered like the moon landing, as I said in my last episode. So from a public relations standpoint, you have people taking these kinds of comments and then spinning them in the public discussion in a way that has people thinking, well, gosh, this stuff must have happened. It had to have happened because the attorney for the defendant in that case is saying that it happened. But what's missing? In that narrative, and it's a narrative that NCAA is explicitly using in its enforcement and infractions process. But what's missing from that narrative is the reason that uh, Gatto's attorney made that admission and the complete irrelevance of that admission to the people and interests and institutions involved in the NCAA's case against North Carolina State. And when you look at that statement, there's some things that you're not going to read about in the mainstream media. You're not going to read about in the NCAA's positioning. It's Carol Cartwright's all uptight about adversarial posturing. This is adversarial posturing. The use of this statement, this opening statement, that is adversarial posturing by the NCAA. And the NCAA has elevated adversarial posturing to an art form. Its entire enforcement and infractions process is built on adversarial posturing. And this is a perfect example of that. And it's dishonest adversarial posturing. At least NC State was making honest, credible, legitimate arguments about the NCAA's misapplication of the importation clause. Carol Cartwright says that's adversarial posturing. No, what you've done, NCAA, that is adversarial posturing. And it makes a mockery of your self-righteous claims to be protecting the integrity of college sports.
So let's break down the statement that Gatto's attorney made. And again, you have to look at this through the eyes of the legal team that's representing Gatto. They're thinking about the case and they're defending conspiracy to commit wire fraud and the commission of wire fraud, the substantive wire fraud charges, and then this conspiracy theory. And under that statute, the basic elements are that somebody has engaged in deceptive conduct that actually resulted in actions or could have resulted in actions through which they obtained money or property using interstate communication methods, either wire or mail. That's basically, it's very broad and it doesn't take much in the way of evidence. I, I talked about that as well. So if you're Gatto's attorney, you're looking at this really through the lens of how do we defend those elements of the crime? What are our best options here? And Gatto's attorneys faced with a, a really important strategic decision on the front. And that is, do we try to disprove the chain of custody of this money? And they could get bogged down. It's very fact intensive. It's going to take forever. And it's really not focusing on the primary purpose of their defense here and the obvious defense here. And that is twofold. One, the predicate for the conduct in this case, the deception is the violation of NCAA amateurism rules. And Judge Kaplan acknowledged that. He said at the root of this case is the principle of amateurism. And I've talked about that in prior episodes too, in the victim university theory in the episode on the victim university theory. But that was how he conceptualized the theory and that the universities were, be, were victimized because they awarded scholarship money to players who were actually ineligible. And then they were subjected to the risk of NCAA penalties because they had a player playing for them who shouldn't have been playing. That's basically the damage to the universities. And that was the theory that the trial court adopted and that the prosecution pursued. So what Gatto's attorneys did in the context of the wire fraud statute, they made what I think was the right decision here to try to really streamline this and focus on their best arguments. And their two best arguments are that a violation of NCAA rules, and you just concede, okay, just concede for the sake of argument that all of these transactions occurred and that they constitute a clear violation of NCAA amateurism-based compensation limits. You concede that. But a violation of NCAA rules is not a criminal act. And that is a great argument. And it's clean. And it has resonance because I think there are enough people who, even at that time, had come to the view that the NCAA was a fundamentally corrupt organization and that their amateurism-based compensation limits were a sham. And again, this is before the unanimous decision by the Supreme Court that essentially legitimized that view of the NCAA, that this amateurism thing is a complete sham. But in 2018, there were a lot of people out there who viewed the NCAA business model the way that the Supreme Court ultimately viewed it in June of 2021 in a unanimous decision. So that was a good theory that, look, let's just assume that all this stuff happened. It's not a criminal act. Violating NCAA rules is not a criminal act. And then the second thing that they were arguing, that Gatto and his legal team were arguing, is that even if violating NCAA rules is a crime, if that standard of conduct is going to be adopted by the federal government as a criminal act, that in this case, Gatto and his role in this didn't result in him 
benefiting through the receipt of property. So Gatto could legitimately portray himself as a really a passive actor here. He wasn't really involved in the transactions and at least not on the front end. And in a related vein, Gatto was saying that the quote unquote victim universities weren't deprived of property. This additional risk of being penalized by the NCAA, this hypothetical risk, wasn't really a property interest. And that the same was true for these tuition payments. And that goes back to the whole, the victim university theory. But Gano has a couple of pretty good arguments here. And early in the case, and I think it was December of 2017, Gatto's attorneys file a motion to dismiss the entire case on those grounds. And they say, putting aside the question of whether these transactions occurred. And they didn't come out and admit that they occurred in that motion. They said, well, it's just for the sake of argument. Let's just put these to, to the side. And I think that was really how their lawyers were thinking about this. But that's really irrelevant to Gatto's defense in this case. And that is that a violation of NCAA rules can't be a violation of federal criminal law. And that even if they can be, he didn't, he wasn't involved in obtaining property in furtherance of this alleged fraudulent scheme. Two pretty good arguments. The court denied the motion, of course. So when we get to the trial of the case, Gatto's attorneys are using that same line of thinking. And this statement that he made in opening arguments goes a little bit further than Gatto went in the motion to dismiss because it appears that Gatto's attorney comes out and says, okay, this, these things occurred. We're not going to waste your time trying to prove that they didn't occur. But even that, he, he may not have really been precise in how he couched that because in the motion to dismiss just a few months earlier, they're saying, well, we're not even going to get into that. Let's just take that and put it on the back burner here. And that's exactly what he did. And it was a good strategic move for this trial, but it was a strategic move. This is just a, really what Gatto's attorney is doing here is explaining to the jury, the legal thinking, the tactical thinking here. And that is, let's just put all this stuff. This he said, she said stuff to the side and all this hair splitting to the side. Let's focus on these two important issues here. And then the judge had carefully circumscribed how those issues could be presented because he wasn't allowing the defendants to put the NCAA on trial. And I think that was a, a mistake. And again, that case is now on appeal in the U.S. Supreme Court. And these basic arguments that Gatto made in the motion to dismiss and then in, at the trial are the subject of this appeal to the U.S. Supreme Court. We'll see what happens. But in his opening statement, Gatto's attorney makes this concession for, obviously, for tactical purposes. And it is to do what he is paid to do and ethically required to do. And that is take the best positions, the most effective positions for his client. His client is James Gatto and only James Gatto. His loyalties reside with James Gatto. His ethical responsibilities lie with James Gatto. And he needs to put together his defense in a way that is best for James Gatto. He doesn't care about NC State. He doesn't care about Mark Gottfried. He doesn't care about Orlando Early or Sean Farmer or Dennis Smith, for that matter. He cares about James Gatto and neither NC State nor Mark Gottfried, nor Orlando Early, nor any of the other characters in this cast were defendants in the criminal case. They weren't called to testify in the criminal case. And NC State in that case was deemed the victim. And the other thing that's important to remember is that NC State is not the only victim, capital V, university, capital U. You've got Kansas and you have Louisville here as well. 
So Gatto's attorney is having to deal with three different sets of transactions, three different universities. And so this sweeping opening statements about just not getting into all of these payments, or just let's just assume that they occurred. Let's concede that they occurred. That is a broad, broad statement that applies to a broad range of facts in different universities and different transactions and different actors and conflating those three fact scenarios, those three institutions, those three completely different transactions just doesn't uh, pass the smell test. So using that statement under those circumstances as a blanket concession binding on NC State, binding on Mark Gottfried, binding on Orlando Early, binding on anybody on the NC State side of that is unconscionable that the NCAA would use that statement as credible, quote unquote, evidence. It's not evidence. And the judge in that case and the judge in every case, in both criminal cases and civil cases, give explicit warnings and instructions to the jury to basically not listen to what the lawyers say in opening statements because it's not evidence. It is not evidence. It's not admissible. It's not for use in the deliberations. It means absolutely nothing. And it's also my belief that this reply, all these documents in this NC State case, they weren't written by the in-house enforcement staff. These were vetted by NCAA lawyers, and they've got a whole staff of in-house NCAA lawyers, and they have outside lawyers looking over this stuff to the best lawyers that money can buy. And those lawyers, both within the NCAA and outside of it, know full damn well that the statement that they put in this document, this NCAA infractions and enforcement document, is it worth the paper it's written on? They know that. But here they are using it as evidence in a system that is just so rigged against the people who are being investigated. But this is where the NCAA is sitting right now in this case. And the NCAA's use of statements from the closing argument has some of the same defects. And then the use of the information from the indictment, which is, again, just an allegation. It's not proof. And then the use of information from the sentencing memos, which are self-serving as they could be. None of that is reliable. None of that would be admissible in another tribunal. So if there were another criminal case involving some of these same issues, the prosecution couldn't pull in statements from Gatto's attorney in opening or closing arguments or what was contained in the indictment or what was contained in the sentencing memos, they would be irrelevant and prejudicial. More importantly, they're prejudicial. And that is the case here because they're taking evidence from a proceeding in which none of the defendants, quote unquote, in this NCAA case were a party to. They had no ability to challenge any of these assertions, and they had no influence over the conduct of the trial. And in one rich irony in this case, the prosecution actually called the NC State compliance officer to testify about how serious universities take their commitment to rules compliance. <laughs> this is when, you know, NC State's cooperating with the prosecution, cooperating with the court, NC State's cooperating with the NCAA when they are all on their high horse as victims of this fraudulent scheme, this horrible scheme committed by employees of an entity that NC State has a $40 million contract with. Again, you, you just can't make this stuff up. But 
On the backside of all that cooperation, NC State just gets a big bag of crap thrown in their face by the NCAA. And this is the bag of crap, this reply to NC State's response. So now let's look at the, the next thing, and that is the use of Early's silence to substitute for the investigative process and to assume the guilt of NC State as an institution. And I just want to read a paragraph from the NCAA's reply that talks about this and how they intend to use it. And again, the use of these provisions that came in as a result of the Commission on College Basketball that relate to the consequences of non-cooperation go far beyond what I believe the Commission on College Basketball intended. And these are just due process breaches of a magnitude it's difficult to put into words. But they say, Early did not respond to the notice of allegations and consistent with bylaw 19.7.2, and those are the non-cooperation provisions, Early's failure to submit a response may be viewed by the hearing panel as an admission that the alleged violations occurred. Additionally, Early did not cooperate with the investigation and consistent with bylaws 19.2.3.2.2 and 19.7.8.3.3. Yes, those are actually citations from the NCAA Division I manual. Early's failure to participate in an interview may be viewed by the hearing panel as an admission that the alleged violation occurred. Early's non-cooperation may be used as further corroboration of Gasnola's and Gatto's statements confirming the violations. So what the NCAA is saying there is that they can take Orlando Early's failure to respond to the notice of allegation and his failure to cooperate as substantive proof that every allegation that is tied to Orlando Early is deemed admitted and the NCAA can use those admissions to prove its case. And that's simply not what the Commission on College Basketball intended. They can use early silence to penalize early, but imputing that to the institution, particularly under these circumstances when NC State can credibly take the position that early was acting outside the scope of his employment, that is a leap that is simply unfair. It's just unfair on its face. So the NCAA has taken the most expansive view of these principles of non-cooperation, and they're using them as a substitute for real evidence. We don't know what happened to that money. And early's Silence. That's his prerogative, but that's probably a career killer. So he, he made a decision and he's going to live with that. I don't know. We'll see. But, you know, these coaches <laughs> seem to keep resurfacing. Rick Pitino got fired and he was making $1.5 million personally from the Louisville's contract with Adidas in this 2015-2016 year. And he's back and he's coaching at Iona and, and ESPN and all the big-time sports media outlets are doing the feel-good stories about Rick Pitino's comeback. I don't know. I don't think that flows down to the assistant coaches. I don't know if Orlando Early is going to be welcomed with open arms anywhere. But the point I want to make is that the NCAA pitches the use of these tools as entirely appropriate because this isn't a federal criminal case. This isn't a formal legal proceeding. This is just a nonprofit entity trying to do it the best it, it can do to uphold its principles of integrity, and they're doing it in the face of all these bad actors thwarting their efforts. And that is not an honest view of what these cases really mean and the stakes that are at issue. And the purpose of these enforcement and infractions actions 
is to punish and to deter. And they have a criminal-like formulation and structure, and they have a criminal-like purpose. And in a criminal case, Orlando Early could say he was not going to say anything, and it wouldn't be held against him. The NCAA is doing the exact opposite under this guise that this is just some ministerial, low-level, benign inquiry, cooperative inquiry into NC State's conduct here and into Early's conduct here. And this is all built around upholding these noble principles. And that is a fraud. The NCAA wields its power, its unchecked power, its freedom to do whatever the hell it wants to do in light of this NCAA versus Tarkanian case to exercise all of the authorities of a criminal tribunal without any of the responsibilities. And that's how we should be viewing this infractions and enforcement process. And then the last thing, and this is also a due process train wreck, was the inclusion in August of 2018 of this sentence in the paragraph on quote-unquote basis of decision. Like, what are the decision makers in the infractions and enforcement process going to look at and how are they going to look at it? And the basis of decision provision really relates to the admissibility of evidence, not to the standard of review or, or what the standard should be in evaluating the evidence. But there isn't one in bylaw 19 for the NCAA. There's really no standard at all. And this basis of decision is an evidentiary standard. And they added this sentence in 2018 that said that the NCAA enforcement and infractions decision makers could use circumstantial evidence. And these phone records really tell us nothing. We don't know what was said in those phone conversations or in some text messages. And I guess you can infer what the conversation was about from those, but those don't even tell the whole story. But the NCAA is taking timelines from this circumstantial evidence to assume that because some of these communications occurred around these critical points on the timeline that a violation occurred. And the NCAA is very good at where there's smoke, there's fire, but they don't want anybody to really look through the smoke and see whether there is a fire or where it is. <laughs> whether the smoke's coming the, from the fire they think it's coming from. They, they don't want that. And I guess the last thing I'll say as I close this episode out is that it's just so ironic that the NCAA, who has built this parallel universe based on black hat, white hat dynamics, this binary view of the world, is relying exclusively on the blackest of black hats in the testimony of T.J. Gasnola. Their entire case is built around this guy. If the, if the NCAA is so concerned about principles of integrity, it would say that his testimony, even though it was admitted, you know, with the weight of the, the boot of the federal government on Gasnola's throat, even though it was admitted in this ridiculous criminal case on charges of conspiracy to commit wire fraud, the NCAA, if it were a truly honorable uh, nonprofit who is looking at upholding principles of integrity and in its view of this white hat, black hat world, it would say, we're not taking any evidence that comes in through TJ Gasnola. We just, we're not doing it. I mean, this guy is the worst of the worst, and we're not going to impute to a member institution or people at the member institution conduct that comes from testimony from this guy. It's just, we're just not going to do it. And with that, I'll close this thing out. In the next episode, we're going to go from the bizarre into the surreal, and we're going to take a look at Carol Cartwright's February 14th, 2020 referral petition to the 
referral committee that was formed in connection with this independent accountability resolution process. And that referral letter is just, it's shocking on so many levels. And it's, again, a, a window into how the NCAA really thinks behind the scenes and how it saw itself in February of 2020. All right. So I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care. Take care.